Hey, how are you all doing? I am doing great tonight. I hope everyone had a good weekend. No one's shown up yet. I may have a zero audience tonight. That would be awesome. That way I can say what I really want. <laughs> of course, when I say what I really want anyway, so I'll give you a few minutes. Hey, Doug, how are you? Good to see you. I'm going to try a new experiment tonight. We're going to see how this works. While you're here, let me experiment real quick. Hold on. I've got a uh, important message from someone or other. Oh, must not be. Let me ask you a question real quick, Doug, while I'm at it, while you're here. can't read that can you nope that's too small okay so some of that i will have to show personally okay cool i'm just doing a quick experiment i'm trying a new system getting ready for uh my mormonism live coming up next monday night woohoo i am excited about that it's going to be a good it's going to be a good Mormonism live. Cannot read. All right. Hey, Tim. Hey, Lamb Chop. Yeah, just hold it up to the camera. I will on that one. I've got some big uh, visuals that I will try to put on this board. I think they'll show up. I've got some pretty good ones like this one. I've got magnets. So, yeah, see, that one's easier to see. I will show some visuals. Anyway, on the uh, text ones, I won't worry so much about the text ones, but I've got some nifty points I want to make tonight. How's everybody's week been? Hey, Teresa Pittman, great to see you again, dear. It's going to be a good night tonight. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you can get them. Yes. <clears throat> good point, Doug Vincent. Good point. Okay, good, good. Everyone's doing good. All right, hey, let's get started. It's after 6 o'clock at 6.02. I've shaken hands in the foyer, like one of my uh, audience members told me. He said, quit saying hello to everyone and shake hands. Get on with it. <laughs> so let's do Okay, here. Okay, we're shaking hands. Everybody shake hands. Bow to your neighbor, bow to your neighbor. Yeah, now shut up and get on the pulpit and uh, give us your speech or your your fireside or your beloved sacrament meeting talk my beloved brethren and sisters i am so grateful to be here in this lovely chapel tonight oh okay backyard professor returning back from pluto <laughs> hey boksha good to see you buddy very good. Yeah, I will. I will do that. Okay. And I will do that. I'm going to do an experiment. Um, I've got a special treat for you all tonight. I need to share with you something that happened. And it's going to really be a hoot for all of us. I have a special video. So dang good to see you again. I can't hardly stand it. Tonight, 
is going to be a great night on the Sunday Firesides with the Backyard Professor because I have someone I'd like to introduce you to that I'll bet like heck. Wish you had access to and could enjoy some time that I have been able to today. Come on over here, young man. Do any of you recognize this guy? <laughs> hey, guys. Say hi, Gerardo. Hi. <laughs> We're in my basement right now amidst my library. Gerardo has something he wants to tell you. Yeah, it's been awesome spending three hours with back here, <laughs> Professor, looking at through all his huge library of books and preparing for next Monday, May first second second let, let me check second, let me make sure second. yeah may second, may second. having back your professor on mormon stories and he we're going to be talking about the book of abraham he has some really cool graphics that never been seen before right yeah yeah i have i have been able because he was so nice to invite me and john delin was so nice to invite me on their show that i have been able to put together in a larger context everybody shows the the papyri you know the stuff the book of breathing the book of the dead and all that the book abraham but i've been able to connect a lot of the separate pieces into whole units and he's liking what he sees so freaking mind-blowing <laughs> yeah so we're gonna have a lot of fun here not Let's see, not tomorrow night, a week after tomorrow night. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah, we've been having fun. He's an expert uh, picture taker and producer of fabulous shows. In case you haven't heard of Mormon Stories, you might want to check it out. He is the brains behind the brains with the brains over there. <laughs> That's a good way to describe it. That's a good it. way, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got brains. Let's give the guy credit. Uh, we're looking forward to having May second. We've been we've been three hours putting together an outline and kind of laying things out for the uh, visuals. I actually have come up with a decent way to do the visuals, and with Gerardo's expertise on the large screen, we've got some excellent ways. I, he showed me he can manipulate the photographs of the materials we are going to take uh the the photos off of the uh joseph smith paper site right right, right. yep directly from the churches yeah website. yeah of the papyri so right. that's all going to be crystal clear and then i put together a lot more with that papyri plus other different parts out of the egyptian alphabet and grammar and from the egyptian alphabet right. and trying to show the different scribes ideas and all that so we have a fabulous show yeah they do anyway i'm just going to be the dingling talking <laughs> they're going to be the good ones oh, next monday i am going to be on the mormon stories <laughs> podcast it's going to be mind-blowing we're going to go for what is it 6 p.m to yeah uh, i'll have to check the time but yeah some something around that let, let, let's see let's check uh 6 p.m yeah 6 p.m yep. so so we'll be able to go for about 13 hours non-stop before we all fall asleep so come and join <laughs> us 
They said three hours, but yeah. the way Delenn asks excellent questions and the way Gerardo asks excellent questions and wants clarifications, we'll probably go three, three and a half, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And then we will, the intent is to have a second version where I tell my full story as well, like Radio Free Mormon has been able to do. But I know most of you guys in my audience are already watching these guys and thoroughly enjoying them. And so now you get to watch me for three hours, make a complete fool of myself. So <laughs> I'm excited, but Gerardo is a hoot. He's a lot of fun. So I just wanted to bring in my guest in my house to take awesome. some photographs. Yeah, it thank you for been having so me. so much fun. Yeah, it's been amazing. We're going to go to lunch, so we will catch up to you guys tonight. Well, I will. He's got to head back, unfortunately, and that's all good. So... We will see you guys Monday, next Monday. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, sorry, I dropped Gerardo on his head. He wanted to say hi to everybody and let you know that uh, we were having fun. We have had him take photos of all of my materials, and we will have them as slides, and we will be taking the papyri straight off of the church's website, and we'll be able to make all the connections, and we are going to have a spectacular show next Monday night on Mormon Stories, 6 p.m. Mountain Time. I uh, believe that's 7, 8 Eastern and 5 on the coast of the Pacific. And in the central, in you Texas people, Paul Osborne, you'll be at 7 o'clock. So we look forward to seeing you all there. Dan Vogel, I saw you step in. How you doing? So Lamb Chops here. Teresa here. Dan's here. And Doug is here. Wing of the Heart Live. Oh, my gosh. I hope not. <laughs> the Wing of the Heart Live. Ooh. Hey, I have that scene to show tonight. So we are going to have fun with that. All right, well, I want to do, I was so excited when Gerardo called me last night and he said, hey, I'm in town, you want to get together? And I said, absolutely, let's do it. So I uh, I invited him over and we had a great time. I showed him several of the different uh, sections of visual involving both the hieroglyphics and the papyri and the alphabet and grammar and some of the comments, and he was really happy. And he asked me a couple of questions that I told him to ask me on the show. And when I showed him the answer with my visuals, he went like this. He went, oh, and that was just the reaction I was wanting. I am so thrilled that he gave me that kind of a reaction. I was so happy I couldn't see straight. So I said, that's the reaction I'm looking for. But he said, so that explains that. And I said, yes, that explains that. You'll never see an apologist talk about like stuff like this. Uh, I gave him some information that uh, Paul Osborne has shared with me. And I gave him some information that Dan Vogel has shared with me. And uh, I put this all together in my fashion with my wording and some new information that I have been able to put two and two together that I don't think, well, these guys already know it, but I'm going to be able to present it in a fun way. So Anyway, we are having fun. We are going to go for broke tonight. Now, last week, 
I got into a wonderful discussion, and apparently a lot of folks liked it. Uh, there's been quite a few views on the videos where I described the concept of all of the planets out there and all of the stars and all of the suns as being inhabited. Now, this was a very big religious and a philosophical and because the telescope had been invented and people were utilizing that telescope, it was a big scientific issue of this theme that there is no waste out there in the cosmos. Everything is made for a purpose. God has caused inhabitants throughout the starry cosmos on suns, on our sun, on moons, on our moon, on earths, on our earths, and on all of the stars. So this is the background which Joseph Smith definitely was aware of because it was constantly talked about and bantied about all over the place. And so, hi, Patty Cake. How you doing? Welcome. So I'm going to share some more of Dan Vogel's analysis. Now, Vogel really does a very excellent job of refuting the details of both the uh, information of uh, John Gee and then with the famous geocentric interpretation given by Dan Peterson, John Gee, and Brian, Brian, sorry, uh, Bill Hamblin, in their geocentric concept, I'm not going to focus on those details so much as I'm just going to focus on the uh, the astronomical concepts, the, the philosophy, if you will, and to show you where, how, and why Joseph Smith was so interested in that and why he made it one of the truly central points of his book of Abraham. It was a very interesting way that he did that. It's against that backdrop that he developed his scriptural cosmology. Now, I'm in Dan Vogel's very interesting book, the Book of Abraham Apologetics, the best thing in print right now on this subject. You must get this book. I'm on page 120 for those of you who have it. And you want to follow along because you want. We are we are doing like church. We are opening our scriptures and we are doing scripture study tonight. <laughs> oh, we didn't have an opening prayer, did we? Now that's all right. Pray in your heart. Pray in your heart. Okay, so when Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith in 1832, now this is a few years before they acquired the papyri, right? When they said, when they taught that through Jesus Christ, the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters of God that made it into the Doctrine and Covenants, 76 verse 24, and that the inhabitants of this earth were destined to dwell in one of three eternal worlds, early Mormons understood it literally. Now, Vogel makes a very strong point here, but he does not elaborate on it. I have in the past where the literality, literally, of Joseph Smith 
is almost overdone. It's hyper literal to the point to where, wow, it's, yes, of course, we know that there is symbolism involved, but Joseph Smith took this papyri and a lot of the information about the papyri and the provenance of the papyri very literally, very crisply. That context helped me to come clearer, <laughs> clearer about the papyri and its relationship to all of the other literatures that we're involved with, the Kirtland Egyptian papers and the facsimiles in the book of Abraham and the history of the church. That's important to know. In 1833, Oliver Cowdery himself commented, it is a pleasing thing to let the mind stretch away and contemplate the vast creation of the Almighty, to see the planets perform their regular revolutions and observe their exact motions, to view the thousand suns giving light and revolving upon their several axes to the myriads of globes moving in their respective orbits, all inhabited by intelligent beings. So when we recognize that Joseph Smith's cosmology, now, of course, it began before he acquired the papyri. I mean, in 1832, they were talking about this inhabited uh, cosmos. From that time on, all the way up to Joseph Smith's death and far beyond, um, this was a principal theme, this cosmology. And it, it actually uh, probably developed a lot more in Joseph Smith's day than after him. I mean, you know, the saints got kicked out. They had to move west. They had to, you know, build up Salt Lake City and, of course, build the temple there and all that jazz. So they weren't really able to keep the cosmological aspects alive and going. And today, the cosmological aspect of Mormonism has to do with dollars. They've lost the cosmic vision, but man, do they have the money down pat, right? So this is our essential point of getting to, to see the Mormon aspect of cosmology, which of course, no one has developed much beyond what Joseph Smith did in the official church leadership. I know there's some good astronomers in the past that have visited and been at BYU, and they have far surpassed the prophet's visions, but they probably weren't allowed to publish much. So anyway, we shall keep on going. Hey, Paul McKee, how you doing? Welcome. This cosmology is based upon, now this was interesting. I thought, wow, wait a minute. This is pretty good. It culminated, of course, in the publication of the Book of Abraham. Now, this wasn't until 1842. See, so 1835, 41, 2. We're talking through a seven-year period. And during that period, of course, Joseph Smith was very busy. This articulated a system of ruling planets headed by Kolob, the nearest place to God's throne, uh, 
Smith's text drew on the bound grammar in which in 1835 he had given more details of his unique cosmology in the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language. Now, that was interesting to me. I was not aware of that as an apologist at all. See, we have, uh, there is complexity in with this subject, but not complexity leading to confusion, right? Uh, I, I, I think the apologists are in a flippant conspiracy. I, I can't believe anything they ever say or write anymore because they make it way too confusing unnecessarily. Of course, it's because they know Joseph Smith's translation didn't work, right? So they're still taking Hugh Nibley's attitude way back from 1968. Well, I'm going to spar for time. Well, you've had since 1968. Your time is up. It's time to pay the piper. That's what's going on. So this theme that the cosmology comes from the grammar, we have four different folios. Now, here's part of the complexity, but it's not difficult complexity. Instead of two folios, we have four. See, so that's going to be more complex, but it's not more confusing. We've got the valuable discovery book, right? We've got the Egyptian alphabet. Now, I'll show you later tonight in a visual uh, the alphabet, where it came from. Then we have the bound, and, and the alphabet was only by, it was, uh, we have three copies. One, Joseph Smith, the folio A, and then William Phelps, I believe, and Cowdery. Parrish wasn't a scribe yet. He came a little later. He came in October. Uh, we're talking July. So there's the alphabet folio. We, so we have one, the valuable discovery. The second folio is the alphabet. The grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language is, for all intents and purposes, just a big expansion of the alphabet folio. Just think of it like computer folders in, in your files in, in a computer. You have a, a file of the valuable discovery, you have another file there of the alphabet, and now you have another file of the grammar and alphabet. And the reason it's called the grammar is because there are different areas in the grammar and alphabet that give their view of how the grammar of hieroglyphics work, right? So, and the, the grammar and alphabet is where they share their five-degree meaning system of enhancing the power of the grammatical meaning of each hieroglyph depend on whatever physical characteristics it has, how many lines it has underlined, how many lines above it, etc. So that, and then they expand the meaning much more in the grammar and alphabet than they do in the alphabet. Okay. And then you have the translation documents, the Book of Abraham translation documents. So there's four folios, but you don't have to be confused about it. When Joseph Smith finally got around to publishing the Book of Abraham, the cosmology in the text and in the facsimiles 
was based upon the cosmology that they had elaborated on in the bound grammar and alphabet. That's interesting to me. I did not know that. See, the apologists, they, they think they have this magic word. Oh, revelation, by revelation. Oh, well, you know, this problem solved. It, it's like the rest of the world with the God of the gaps. When they run across a problem, they say, oh, well, God did it. Well, that doesn't answer anything. That doesn't give you any further intelligence, light, and truth. It's just pushing it to the God of the gaps. Well, the, the, the Mormons have their own version of that. They say, oh, well, it was a revelation. They think that saves the day. It doesn't. So I just wanted to bring that out. And I'm probably emphasizing it too much. Hey, Mark Crispin, how you doing, buddy? Paul McKee, good to see you again. Patty Cakes here, Mark Crispin, Doug Vincent. Yep, you guys are having fun. Vega Dog, good to see you, buddy. Mosia, how you doing? Paul McKee, I'd rather said hi to you. Okay, I got to quit shaking hands in the foyer. I've got to get up and give a speech here. <laughs> so you guys are going to have to shake your own hands out there. So, so this system of astronomy that I want to talk about tonight in the bound grammar and in Abraham 3 are best understood in the context of 19th century astronomy. And this is one of Vogel's strong points. I'm in Vogel's book, the book of Abraham Apologetics. I'm on page 120. That's actually one of the strong points that Vogel brings out that is really important to know. So he translated for a while in July, right? And then there was a two-month break. And then when they came back in October, on, on the 1st of October, 1835, Oliver Cowdery wrote in Joseph Smith's journal, this afternoon labored on the Egyptian alphabet. Notice this. They're not in the grammar. They're not in the valuable discovery anymore. They're in the alphabet. That's what it says, right? In company with brothers Oliver Cowdery and W.W. Phelps. So it's Smith, Phelps, and Cowdery in the 1835 grouping. Uh, William W. Phelps, according to the apologists, is the main man, and Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith is his scribe. That's called the reverse translation theory. That's part of it, and that's just asinine. Now, I mean, it's like the apologists don't even give a flying flip anymore about what the official history says, right? Dan Vogel has decimated that. No, Joseph was the man in charge, and he was the one dictating to William W. Phelps and Oliver Cowdery. Let's just keep that clear, because I'm, I'm serious. Unfortunately, the apologists are trying to confuse us on that. No joke. I'm getting sick to death of the apologists messing things up. Um, we want clarity, so we go to the evidence. Yeah. So the next sentence is a significant one. It was in October that the system of astronomy was unfolded. Okay. So there's our chronology. This refers to the bound grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language. In which, and here's my first visual I'm going to give you, and don't worry, it's large. You'll see this, I promise. The last seven characters, now, if this is in the alphabet, the last seven characters, and I'm going to put this up, and I'll let you look at this while I continue reading to you, because this is a great visual, I promise. You're going to love this. 
Uh, let me put this up. Very good. Oh, that went up easier than I thought. Good. Okay, here we go. There, you can see that really well, right? Yeah, that's nice. Now, let me continue explaining what this is. So, this is the system of astronomy that was unfolded as they were translating the alphabet. Now, this is from the Egyptian alphabet. And these numbers here is the character number. The alphabet had several dozen characters. So you got 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42. These seven characters, Yani Ha, a messenger from the celestial kingdom. Ya-O-A, Earth. Flo-Is, the moon. Flo-Isis, the sun. Kli-Flo-Isis, the measurement of time. Be-Kli-Flo-Isis, the power of one of the fixed stars. And Kolob, a star nearest God's throne. And slowest. This is Abraham's system of astronomy according to Joseph Smith. We want to understand this. These are the only characters in the, I said only, I shouldn't say only, but these characters, I'll word it this way, these characters are dramatically emphasized in the grammar because every one of them Receive definitions in all five degrees in the grammar. And this describes a hierarchy of stars and planets organized much in the same manner as Smith had recently organized the priesthood authorities in his church. A cosmology unfolds folds in the definitions of these seven characters, which are found in the bound grammar and alphabet. These, these characters and their names and meanings, now the thing we want to no notice about these is these circular characters here, Ya-O-A, the circle with the cross, Earth, Flow east, the circle with the line down it, and then just basically just a, a great big dot. Flow size is the sun, flow east is the earth. These three round ones are not in the alphabet as such. They, or I should say, they weren't in the uh, papyri. And Vogel mentions how this particular graphic here is found in the almanacs of his day. So the suggestion is that the circular characters are influenced by the almanacs. All of these other ones come off the papyri, and I will show you where here in just a few minutes where Joseph Smith got his astronomical characters from. And it is extremely interesting where he could have gotten them from. Now, let me show you, and here's where I get to show you my beautiful face one more time. Yes, uh, Paul Osborne, I see you're saying unfolded equals revelation. I don't agree with that anymore, just for the record. Unfolded is something entirely different. Now, of course, the apologists, they love the idea of revelation, 
But when they say unfolded, they mean something much more down to earth and specific. Just so you know. <laughs> hey, I might get to have a good discussion with Paul Osborne. It's always fun to talk to Paul Osborne. So, yeah, that visual is particularly large. I am going to take Doug's suggestion and hold up these next few visuals because the print is so small. But they are very, very important to see because I want to show you this because this is actually a somewhat unique thing in the Egyptian grammar. And a lot of the symbols, now, of course, he had dozens and dozens of them. You remember... You remember I showed a couple of weeks ago where uh, I just happened to have it conveniently right here. Hot dog. Oh, nice. Remember a couple of weeks ago I showed you this one? This is the pure atomic language. Well, these characters, see, here's, here's the characters in the Egyptian alphabet, and several of them are not on the papyri. They come from the 1834 and 5 speculations, if not earlier, of the Adamic language. And it was bandied about that uh, Egyptian hieroglyphic was actually the corrupt version of the Adamic language in Joseph Smith's day. So Joseph Smith was big on the idea of the pristine language. And he brought that into the papyri, which is really interesting. So some of the characters in the Egyptian alphabet are not even Egyptian. We don't know what they are because those characters in the Adamic language have never been discovered in any actual texts, manuscripts, archaeological digs, historical discoveries, nothing. We don't, except if you look in early Mormonism, <laughs> when you look at Joseph Smith, yeah, he always gets it, doesn't he? Yeah, so, and this is my, this is my, uh, I show, now this is the actual handwritten. I get this out of the Joseph Smith papers. This is the actual Egyptian uh, alphabet, and I'm just showing where the Adamic language characters are. They were embedded among many other characters. So there's an Adamic language involved. There's an astronomical language. There is a a uh, Dan Vogel, a patriarchal priesthood line, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What I want to show you now is really interesting because uh, Vogel wasn't kidding. There are now. I'm going to start with. Uh, I'm going to start with this one, Yahoa. Now I want you to look over here, right here. This is part two. The D means degree. I get this right out of the Joseph Smith papers also. But notice degree one is at the bottom of Yahoe. Then it go, and then you have the description of what it means in the first degree. Then you have the second degree, and it gives you some new information. Sometimes it will repeat the old information, but it will add something. Then you have the third degree, and it will give you more information still. See, it's unfolding in greater and greater grammatical complexity and meaning. Then you go to the fourth degree, and it unfolds. And look at that fifth degree. The fifth degree is an absolutely massive explosion 
of meaning. I mean, they really expand on it really enormously. And how Vogel describes this is quite interesting. The Yanni Ha, and that was the one I, no, no, I did show you the Ya'oe. Well, all of them have the five degrees. The Yanni Ha is the next one. Well, and it's defined in the, uh, in the first, it's what I showed you. Yanni Ha is the messenger from the celestial kingdom, right? So, so this is one of the first definitions of Yanni Ha, and then Ya'oe means the earth, and it is based on Ya'oe that the cosmology unfolds in the uh, Joseph Smith cosmology, both in the bound alphabet and grammar and in the uh, explanations of facsimile number two. So we're going to get this and the unfolding, and this is... I understood this also before I even got Vogel's book, but the way he expressed it was very, very well done. The unfolding is that five-degree system of beginning with the lowest order, the first degree, give the definition, then in the second degree, give, and sometimes they repeated the definitions and just changed one word. And then in, in the third degree, they might have added an entire new concept and construct. And then they went through all five degrees. The really cool thing about this is they went through all five degrees with all seven of those characters. Now that is really interesting. The emphasis is on the well, and he went to the literality of the astronomy. There's no question about that. Joseph Smith took it very literal. He was trying to describe the system of the heavens as Abraham understood it. And of course, the apologists are going to take umbrage with this because it's nothing like the astronomy in Abraham's day. <laughs> there's no flat earth. There's no, there's no dome that has all the uh, the pinholes in it, the, the stars in the in the sphere. Now, isn't it interesting that the rakia, the uh, the uh, the Hebrew word in Genesis is uh, oh, Gadfrey. It's been too long since I've read it. The firmament, uh, it's actually uh, sheet metal. The word translates out as a metal dome pounded out with a hammer and then put all the way up into the heaven. That was their principal idea of the firmament. That's the ancient Near East cosmology. We get nothing like that in the book of Abraham. So what kind of cosmology is this is the question. And then, of course, the apologists are arguing for the uh, ancient geocentric, and Dan Vogel shows that it is not, and how he shows this is really good. But there is a cosmology that it is that it ties into, and it just happens to be the 19th century cosmology of guess who? Joseph Smith's day. It always comes back to that, huh? I mean, seriously, we, we have to. You know, we're to the point, we found enough information, you guys. We're to the point to where we just have to bite the bullet and say, you know what? Joseph Smith did not operate in a vacuum. I mean, he was influenced by his environment just exactly like everybody is, right? 
but the apologists don't like that. They don't. They want it to be pristine and pure and a, a whole new revelation and knowledge that God gave that advances humankind. And I understand the sentiment. I get the desire. Yes, but uh, no, that's not what we get. That, we're just going to have to bite bullet on that someday. So now with this with this idea. Uh, and I showed you Yahoo. I want to show you. I want to show you. No, that's Cleophloisis. That's the other one. Where did it go? Did I have it? Vague Cleophloisis. No, nope, that's Colob. I'll get it. I'll get it. Stay calm. Oh yeah, right here. Yeah, Yaniha. Yeah. Okay. So back to Yaniha, and this is the uh, this is the first one. Again, I've I've. Me, personally, I emphasize the five degrees on it because that means Joseph Smith really made a big deal about this. When you see where they got the hieroglyphs, it'll shock you. The theme here with Yaniha is it's uh, it's possible that redeeming figure, the redeeming power, the swift messenger coming from the celestial region, the second person in authority is possibly referring to the person of Jesus Christ. The fifth degree adds one cent from the celestial kingdom. Now with Yahweh, and there is Yah, is that Yahweh? Yeah, that's Yahweh. With Yahweh, that fifth paragraph is really a, a whopper, isn't it? Now notice how though these first four degrees, they're establishing the cosmology very powerfully and interesting, step by step. Uh, the earth under the government, well, the first degree, the earth and the affinity with the other planets. And these are the 15, the earth, the sun, the moon, first in their affinity, including one power. Oh, sorry. I cut off the bottom one, man. And then the earth under the government of another in the second degree, one of the fixed stars, and it's called Oliblish. And then the third degree is the Yahweh, earth under the government of another one of the fixed stars, which is called Enish Goandosh, the power of attraction that it has with the earth. And then the fourth degree is the earth and the power of attraction it has with the third fixed star, which is called Ke'ivanrosh. You notice how it continually builds on the principle of attraction with one fixed star. Then in another degree, it has the affinity and the power with another fixed star, so on and so forth. The fifth paragraph is the big one that really gets the ball of wax rolling. These 15 planets are understood by Abraham and the Egyptians. According to Smith, they were governed by three fixed stars, uh, Oliblish, Enishko Andosh, and K. Ivanrosh, the elaboration of this system occurs in the fifth degree. And there's that great big fifth degree. It's huge. I mean, it's gigantic, right? I mean, they're really letting it out. All of that information in just that little circle with the cross in it. See? And this is designated, interestingly enough, this is designated by Joseph Smith as a translation. That's very important. Apologists don't like that word when it comes to these documents, but that's what he claimed it was, a translation. Well, it's the earth under the governing powers of Oliblish, Enishko Andosh, and K. Ivanrosh, 
These are the grand key, the governing power that governs the 15 fixed stars. Notice that fixed stars. That's important. 12 beside themselves. These govern the earth, the sun, and the moon. They have the power in one. And the other 12 moving planets of this system. Oliblish is Enish Goandosh and K. Ivan Rosh. Those are the three grand central powers that govern all the other creations. And this has been sought out by the most aged of all the fathers since the beginning of the creation by means of the Urim and Thummim. So then it gives the 12 Egyptian names of the fixed stars. That's important for the system that Joseph Smith is elaborating on. There's two groups, interestingly enough. There is a group of fixed stars, and there is a group of moving planets or stars, okay? This is really important because the apologists have not been paying attention to the details, right? They've missed this. Vogel catches it. This is so fascinating because, of course, Vogel is going with the evidence in the bound grammar, and this is ignored by the apologetic attempt to show Abraham, in the book of Abraham, that is, had the geocentric model. And Vogel goes into all the details of that. I'm not going to tonight, maybe another time. However, this is enough to be very, very interesting. The Egyptian names are, let me see if I can pronounce these. Now, the names of the other 12 of the fixed stars, that is important to see that. Kolob, Limdi, Zip, Vurel, Venisti, Wayne, Waga, Ox, Owen, Onsley, Sheble, Scheinfleece, Fliss, and Ots. From there, this is followed by the Egyptian names of the 15 moving planets. I'm emphasizing, I'm not trying to talk down to you, I promise. But the apologists are muddying up this issue. So it's critical to be clear. Joseph Smith is talking about systems of systems of systems of groups of stars and planets. Some groups move. Some groups are still fixed. Some groups govern. Other groups are governed. See, again, this is the complexity, but it's not confusing. We'll, we'll see that. Watch. This is very interesting. So now we're going to see the Egyptian name of not the fixed stars, but the moving planets in this big fifth degree. O.M. Isis, 
Flow Sizes, Flow East. You recognize some of these names, don't you? We just looked at them. They're in the Egyptian alphabet. Absali, Ele, Ash, Sabo, Slundlo, Irom, Crash Makra. <laughs> what a name. Crash Makra. Abel's Isim, Izin's Ba, Missel, Namisile, Ohi Oop Za Zul. <laughs> yeah. The point is not the names. I let the apologist rummage through all the old ancient stuff. They aren't going to find parallels to this in Egyptian. Not happening. Not happening. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is this. The grammar, here we go. Okay, I'm going to show you the next part of the grammar. Now, this is, and I've emphasized some stuff for a little bit later, not right now. This is the, and again, I emphasized on this side, the idea of the five degrees, D1 is degree one, D2, or D1, D2, D3, D4, D5. And then the same with this one, D1, D2, D3, D4, D5. They're all, every one of them are in five degrees. So the grammar defines flows Isis as the sun and flow east as the moon. Own Isis appears first on the list of the 15 moving planets, followed by Flos Isis and Flow East, the sun and moon. As quoted, the earth, the sun, and the moon are described as a unit when it states that the three governing stars, the three governing stars, Stars govern the sun, the earth, and the moon, which have their power in one with the other 12 moving planets of this system. So there's one system he's describing. That's not the universe. That's just one group, one system that Smith is describing. And he gave the names of both the fixed stars and the moving planets. Okay? Keep that in mind. Because now, flows Isis, that's the second one that I'm going to show you, followed by flows Isis and flow East, the sun and the moon. The pattern of 15 fixed stars consists of three grand central stars and 12 fixed stars. It also includes 15 moving planets. Now, very interestingly, this reflects Joseph Smith's recent organization of his church ecclesiastical hierarchy. In February 1834, now this is February 1834. This is a year and a half or so before the papyri was even brought 
to Joseph Smith, right? So we're talking a year and a half earlier. Smith had organized um, the Standing High Council in Kirtland, Ohio, and this included three presidents and 12 high priests, the same kind of organization. So what he's doing is once he... Uh, once he put together the uh, the function, the structure of the church a few years after it was founded, 1830, right? So we're up into 1834. Um, then he projected his uh, organization of the church out onto the astronomical cosmos of Abraham, and that's what helped him put Mormonism into a cosmological connection with the heavens, with the proper restored patriarchal priesthood that he also claimed to find from the fathers in those records. So the papyri was a gift to him. It helped him really gain credibility very well with not only the structure of his church, but now looky here. This structure is the cosmic structure in line with the priesthood being handed down from the biblical prophets of which I own one of their actual books, the papyri, the very papyri that Abraham himself had touched and drew those pictures and wrote this text by his own hand upon papyrus 3,500 years ago. Paul Osborne has shown that Joseph Smith, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, I know you're in the audience, I'm going to say the times and seasons. Now, it either could have been the times and seasons or the messenger and advocate. I will get the exact, uh, I mean, it's over on Shade's message board up in the celestial area, where Joseph Smith himself claimed Jesus Christ himself revealed to him the age of the papyri at 3,500 years old. Now, that was a revelation from Jesus Christ, mind you. When the apologists come along and they agree with today's Egyptologists that these are Ptolemaic documents dating uh, back to, say, 200 to 150 B.C., far too late to be Abraham's, then what they're saying in essence is Jesus Christ didn't understand the provenance of the papyri either. Not only was Joseph Smith ignorant, so was Jesus. Now, you won't see them come to that conclusion, but that is the logical conclusion to come to. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Huh. That's why I'm no longer an apologist, you guys. This is one of the big reasons, definitely. Chris Murphy, welcome, man. Looks like you guys are having fun. Big dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. Paul McGee. JC, thank you for... Ryan Silver, welcome. Thank you for coming on. So this idea is really getting intriguing because he tied it in with his priesthood organization. So the cosmological scheme that we have shown outlined in the bound grammar now, that's, the, uh, that's, that's a separate folio from the alphabets, which is essentially an expanded version of those alphabets, okay? So that's what the grammar is. This fits the October 1st, 1835 uh, 
writing down the entry in Joseph's journal, this states that Smith and Cowdery and W.W. Phelps were working on the Egyptian alphabet when the system of astronomy was unfolded. Now, just these astronomical terms are all unfolded in the five degrees. And I've showed you that, five degrees. One, two, three, four, five. Here's another one. One, two, three, four, five, etc. Every one of them. So this unfolding applies to the each increased grammatical significance of that hieroglyph, depending on which term you're looking at. See, there's the Kolob one there. There's the Vekli Flosisis, Flosisis, Vekli, what the hell? Vekli Flosisis, I can't read it backwards. So this is the unfolding in October 1835. So that's the chronological significance there. Very cool. I'm on page 126 now. We're making progress. I'm going to get to some cool visuals here just shortly. We've been going just about an hour. Excellent. Okay, so in proposing, now, Gee and Mulstein and Rhodes propose a different dating because they don't want the bound grammar and alphabet to be first and the Book of Abraham be derived from it. So they propose that the Book of Abraham was translated totally in July 1835. And Vogel makes mincemeat of this argument in his entire book through 260 pages. It's really well done how he did this. The idea is they ignore all of the astronomical information in the bound grammar. How they can do that, I don't know. See, they want, again, to distance Joseph Smith away from the bound grammar and from the alphabet, right? Because, of course, none of this works with how we currently understand Egyptian hieroglyphics and Egyptian grammar works. That's the big to-do. Joseph Smith's translation doesn't work this way because, of course, he got all the grammar wrong. But in understanding how Joseph Smith thought and analyzed stuff is extremely interesting from a historical perspective. That's what we're doing here. So, and again, Guy's argument proposes yet another missing piece of papyrus. I mean, every time Guy makes an argument, he has to propose another missing piece, right? I, it's just, it's to the point to where it's ludicrous. I mean, come on, John Guy. Occam's razor says, go with the simplest explanation. If every one of your explanations requires yet again, well, we don't have this, but my theory is correct. Isn't it interesting to know that not one, not one, of Guy's many dozens of proposals about various theories of all aspects of this subject, whether it's the inks, the color of the inks, the ideas of the reverse 
translation, the ideas of Joseph Smith not using his scribes, his scribes doing it separately away from Joseph Smith without his uh, input, every one of the missing scroll theory, every one of his theories have been refuted. Not one stands. Not one of his proposals is accepted now worldwide by the world of scholarship or even within Mormonism. I just got news this last week that Royal Skousen has come out and said, at least in an email, a private email, but now he is going away from John Gee and Kerry Mulstein's ridiculous apologetics. Now, the backyard professor quit being an apologist. Paul Osborne quit being an apologist. Dan Vogel quit being an apologist. Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real quit being an apologist. Brian Hauglid has stopped being an apologist. And now we're hearing of Royal Skousen also saying, wait, I don't buy that anymore. Now, that's a huge name, right? So the shakeup is beginning to occur. The apologetic theories from the scholarly end are not gaining traction. They are being rejected. And of course, seriously, properly so, as we will show with the evidence. There's no question. So, the evidence clearly shows that in 1835, Smith's ideas about the ancient astronomy were associated with his interpretations of characters taken from the column three of the horse breathing permit, Joseph Smith Papyrus one, not his translation of characters from Joseph Smith Papyri 11 or the hypocephalus. What does he mean? Here's what I want to show you. This is some of the coolest stuff I have got to show you tonight. It is extremely interesting. The graphic is big. You'll be able to see it very simple. Let me take this one down real quick. The apologists are mudding up the issue with the idea that, uh, let's call them, oh, okay, let me show you this. Well, that's a good one too. Well, no, let me show you this one first. This is the good one. And the nice thing is it's in color. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful graphic. I want to show you this because they say a picture is worth a thousand words. In this instance, it really is. A picture is worth a lot more than a thousand words because the picture shows you the absolute truth. Joseph Smith got the alphabet characters, including the astronomy characters, from the right-hand hieroglyphics of the facsimile number one. I've colored it in green. There's those seven characters. The red arrows point to where in that column, it's the upper part of the column. You can see the one that's attached to facsimile number one, that little green square. Those are 
the hieroglyphs of the astronomy that Joseph Smith is using. He did not get them from the Book of Breathings on the other side of facsimile one. He got them on this side. This is the same side that he also acquired Kolob and all of the other letters of the Egyptian alphabet. Now, the significance of this is really interesting because, and I want to show you this too, because, oh, th this is the one that shows Kolob, right? There's Kolob. And I'll show you the significance of that. And that's one of the astronomical terms in the, in the uh, alphabet. But here's the other fun one that's a kick in the butt. It, it is really interesting. From the same side of facsimile number one on the right-hand side. Now, that is the beginning of the Book of Breathings. All the Book of Breathings, according to Quentin Barney's brand new master's thesis, 2019, according to absolutely every scholar that has ever pontificated on this issue, all of the Books of Breathings had a picture at the front, then they had the writing, then they had a picture at the end, including ours right? Well, on the right-hand side of facsimile number one was hieroglyphics. That particular hieroglyph is, this is how they drew it in the alphabet because they couldn't tell what the actual hieroglyph was. It's actually a man bent over with a walking stick, but that's the signature of Abraham. And that's on the right-hand side in the second column. The first column, the third, I should say, the third. This one out here is the first. The middle one is the second. Actually, and then this one's the third. In the third column, up here, this is the area where he was getting the astronomy terms. Now, isn't it interesting that... It all comes from the book of breathings, right? And Joseph Smith identified every single facsimile as being taken from the book of Abraham. Now, isn't it really interesting that the characters in the hieroglyphs on the right-hand side of facsimile number one is where Abraham is, is where Joseph Smith got the idea. Okay, well, here's how we can learn about the Egyptian alphabet. This is going to give us the basics of the Egyptian alphabet, right? This is where Abraham signed his book. That's the signature of Abraham right there. This is also the place where the most important subject of the Book of Abraham facsimiles, astronomy, this is also the side right there where he got the astronomical information. And he put that in facsimile number two. So number one is the supposed sacrifice. Number two is the round astronomical calculations. And facsimile number three is Abraham sitting on Pharaoh's throne doing what? Teaching the Egyptians astronomy. 
it's really remarkable how much Joseph Smith was utilizing this portion of the Book of Breathings on this side of facsimile number one, not just the Book of Breathings, which is also really important, of course, but in the church publication in the Book of Abraham, you don't see any hieroglyphs from anywhere, whether on the right-hand side or the left-hand side. And yet, those tell us the entire context of where Joseph Smith was getting his information about Abraham was from the Book of Breathings. That's pretty important information, <laughs> I would propose. But there's another connection I have yet to show you that is just fantastic. I'm going to go ahead and show it to you. We're at an hour and 10, so we're doing good. And then that's another close-up of the of the column. Now, the best part of the best part of tonight, and I just wanted to share with you earlier in this video, since there is 55 of us here tonight right now, I just wanted to say to the audience that uh, I had Gerardo over today for about three hours, and we have planned out the entire show for next Monday on May 2nd on Mormon Stories, and he has taken photographs of all of the materials that I have that I'm going to do on their show, and he's going to put them as slides and all that. But he was really, really excited about what I was showing him, what I'm going to talk about on Mormon Stories. So next May, next Monday, May 2nd, 6 p.m., Come on over to Mormon Stories. We're going to be having a ball there. Now, let me show you the other aspect of this that is just so amazing. As we make our way through the Egyptian alphabet, and there was the Joseph Smith copy, the Oliver Cowdery copy, and the W.W. Phelps copy. As we make our way through the alphabets, we, we, I mean, you have to flip page after page in the Joseph Smith papers. They have some, you know, there's 80 or 90 characters that they were finding, that they were finding in this area. This is where they were getting their characters for the Egyptian alphabet. In the grammar and alphabet, it's not until you get to the very end of the alphabet that you begin seeing characters from Papyrus 11. That's from the other side of facsimile 1. Most of the alphabet figures in the Egyptian alphabet are dealing with the valuable discovery notebooks, the princess Katumin and her father Onitas, King Onitas, and the actual priesthood line, the patriarchal authority. It is trying to describe 
how a Hebrew book got involved with these mummies is how Vogel puts it. So the majority of the alphabet itself has nothing to do with the book of Abraham. We know in the alphabet, as I showed earlier on tonight, the the Adamic language characters made their way into the alphabet. We know that astronomy terms now, after tonight, made it into the alphabet. But those weren't part of the book of breathings with which the book of Abraham was translated. We are three-fourths, we're nine-tenths the way through all of the characters that Joseph Smith took from the right-hand side of facsimile number one, and finally, toward the very end, we see the name Abraham. Finally. But we're at the end of the alphabet. The majority of the alphabet isn't about him. This, again, this is the signature of Abraham that I make such a big to-do about. But this is how they copied it, right there. It's kind of a funky-looking drawing. What are these two characters here? These two characters are at the very end of the alphabet, and they are taken from this part not this side. This side is astronomy. Now, the trouble is this part has already flaked off so that today we can't see these. In Joseph Smith's day, they were still legible, and they took those two first characters. These first three characters are the first three characters in the four lines of the Book of Breathings of Hor that Joseph Smith translated into verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. We are finally getting to the Book of Abraham, but it's not until the very last two characters in the alphabet. None of all of what followed previously has anything to do with Abraham in the book of Abraham. The grammar of an alphabet of the Egyptian language is beginning to express the method for the unfolding of the meanings of the hieroglyphics so that even though Hugh Nibley complained about it, he said, there is no way you can take a simple hieroglyph like this one or this one or any of these, although these are groups of hieroglyphs. You notice that. They're not just a single hieroglyph. Yes, there are a single hieroglyph like here or here or here or here. But down here, there are more groups. I mean... Now, these in the gap, of course, all of these are invented. Those aren't actual hieroglyphs at all. This one is not invented. This one is the signature. But all these other ones are invented to fill in the lacuna. I call it the gap. But these are their actual way they drew the hieroglyphics. 
Nimley complained and he said, well, there's no way that you can get an entire page out of one hieroglyph. That wasn't their method, right? But they explained their method in the grammar, right? Here's the connection that I've been dying to show you all night long. And I'm going to go ahead and show it to you. And in fact, I'm going to show it to you on this board because this is too good to miss. This is incredible. This raised Gerardo's eyebrows. This was one of the reactions from Gerardo that I got earlier today while I had him down in my library taking pictures of all my graphics. This is the one. This one and my next one that I want to show you are the two that Gerardo reacted the most strongly to, and that was the reaction I was looking for. I was thrilled to death how he reacted to this. So let me explain. Most people already know this. They understand this. Okay? I think you can see that clearly enough. You'll be able to see it clearly enough because I've color-coded it, but when I explain it to you, you'll really love it. When Joseph Smith acquired the papyri, him and Oliver Cowdery always only ever said there are just two roles, right? They always just identified two roles only. And some extra scraps along with some astronomical calculations. Well, we know now that it was the hypocephalus, one of the round, the round picture that was part of the astronomical connection, but it was incomplete. This part of the rim was blank. There were some of the inside figures that had no writing on. That had been obliterated. This part was real messy. This whole upper corner was empty. And so elsewhere from the papyri, Joseph Smith got his boat of the God. This is the Horus figure with the sun disc in his sun boat that he put here. Well, amazingly enough, Joseph Smith filled in the hieroglyphs, the blank spots. This line of hieroglyphics right here is line four on the Book of Breathings on the side that is translated into the Book of Abraham in the same section that Joseph Smith already translated the book of Abraham, on the left-hand side of facsimile number one. He took this entire line, line four, and he broke it up into three separate sections. And he did not know how to read hieroglyphics. In the process of taking the hieroglyphics from line number four, he plugged them in. I've color-coded the green one goes to the green one, the yellow one goes to the middle part, the yellow, the orange one goes to this orange part. Joseph Smith put these in upside down and backwards. But they are line four from the book of Abraham. 
Then he took line number three and he filled in most of the rim with line number three. Then he took a section of line number two and he repeated it. He put line number two in there and there after each other. So what we have now is a more complete hypocephalus, but this is hieratic. It's not real good hieroglyphic. Here's the thing I want you to notice. Facsimile number one was cut apart, was cut off of the Book of Breathings, and it's identified as a facsimile from the Book of Abraham. It was the same thing way over here on the roll with facsimile number three. How Joseph Smith tied in the hypocephalus of Sheshonk Hypocephali are not associated with books of breathings. Joseph Smith took the same hieroglyphs from the book of Abraham and put them in the hypocephalus, thus making the hypocephalus also from the book of Abraham. Very clever boy. Very interesting how he did this. Very, very wrong as well. But don't you see what this does? This implies one more piece of evidence that we have for the actual identification of the source of the book of Abraham, doesn't it? It really does. He identified in the times and seasons, man, Joseph Smith said this thing was from the book of Abraham. Well, it is. He put book of Abraham text into the hypocephalus, and that's from the book of Abraham. So that's how he tied it in. This is evidence that Joseph Smith is identifying this book of breathings, not only with the book of Abraham translation, but also with the facsimile number two. That's a pretty good identification from Joseph Smith's point of view. Again, I've got another graphic I want to show you that is truly a stunner. This is the other one that Gerardo just goo got over. And I was really happy with his reaction because it shows something truly fundamentally quite wonderful for our purposes. And it's a big graphic. I think you'll be able to see it. Yeah, it's big enough. Yep, that's big enough. Fantastic. Okay. Now, let me express this description of what this is all about. Let's move those so it doesn't distract your eyes. Okay, so this is kind of a recap and a put all together for the implications of what is going on. The implications of this graphic are absolutely enormous. So let me start from the beginning of this particular lecture. We identified the characters, 
the seven characters of the Egyptian alphabet as the astronomical characters, right? The hieroglyph here is found right there. These three circular hieroglyphs were probably influenced by the almanacs in Joseph Smith's day, as Dan Vogel has shown us. Cleflos Isis is this hieroglyph right there. Bay Cleflos Isis is this hieroglyph right there. Kolob is this hieroglyphic right there. This section is an enlarged section of the hieroglyphics in the third column on the right-hand side of facsimile number one. This second column is the one I call the signature of Abraham column. There's his signature right there. So we have the signature and the astronomy, but the definition, and this is ba the basic first degree definition, messenger from the celestial kingdom. Yaniha correlates very well to this explanation in facsimile number two. There is the God in his boat. He's got the sun disk over his head. He's got the wedge-out eye in front of him, the wedge-out eye behind him. The idea, this was blank. This was damaged in Joseph Smith's day. So realistically, there's another ship like this that looks very close to this in the book of Joseph's scroll, interestingly enough, and we think he got this figure from that one. Yahweh is the earth. The definition is these four guys here on the hypocephalus. The astronomy chart, the four figures are identified as the four quarters of the earth. Flow east is the moon. Again, it correlates very well with the cow figure number five. Flow Isis is the sun, again, correlating very well with the second hypocephalus number five. Cleflos Isis is a measurement of time, figure 40. When we look here, this also has to do with revolutions and time. Cleflos Isis is the power of one of the fixed stars, this is also identified with figure five in the explanation, which I'm going to read to you while I leave this up. Kolob, of course, Kolob is the central one, and it's identified as such a star nearest God's throne and slowest right there. So while I leave this chart up, and let you ponder the astronomical terms from the hieroglyphs near facsimile one and how their descriptions, which were unfolded in all five degrees, find their way into the hypocephalus explanations. This is astonishing how this ties in 
the entire book of Abraham with Taba, the book of breathings. A total commitment to the book of Abraham that Joseph Smith had, of course, because that was his baby. Here's Kolob number one. Here is the explanation, recognizing it to mean a star nearest God's throne is slowest. Kolob signifying the first creation nearest to the celestial or the residence of God. There you have it, nearest God's throne right there. According to celestial time, the measurement, which celestial time signifies one day to a cubit, one day in Kolob is equal to a thousand years, according to the measurement of this earth, which is called by the Egyptians, Yahoa, the earth. You see the almanac here has the same depiction of the earth. This is an almanac in Joseph Smith's day. There's the same hieroglyph. And you look over here, and it's described as the four quarters of the earth from the hieroglyphics in the facsimile, next to the facsimile number one. Number two, stand, now this one stands next to Kolob. Again, we have this idea, the Egyptians' Oliblish, which we found in some of the fifth-degree descriptions, right? This is the next grand governing creation near to the celestial or the place gods reside, holding the key of power. Number five, the uh, this one, the Mechweret cow, the great mother goddess, and this has the ideas on the measurement of time, the power of the fixed stars, and so on and so forth. This is probably the most important figure in hypocephali, according to some Egypt Egyptologists. It's called in Egyptian Enish Goandosh. We saw that in the degree system unfolding of these words in the five degrees. Enish Goandosh, one of the governing planets, also said by the Egyptians to be the sun. Here we go. Sun. Flos Isis from the hieroglyph. The sun right there. Fabulous title. K. Ivan Ross, the medium, which is the grand key, the governing power with the 15 other fixed planets or stars. Flois or the moon. Here's this hieroglyph. Flois or the moon. Also here as well as here. The moon is definitely involved with this. The Cleflos Isis, the medium, the Hakokavim, the stars. And then we have this representation of the idea of represents God sitting on his throne, figure seven. This is the phallic deity, men, but it shows the idea of God sitting on his throne, revealing through the heavens the grand keywords of the priesthood. Again, Again, the patriarchal priesthood was found in the hieroglyphs along with the language of Adam, the astronomy, the signature of Abraham, all tying this together with facsimile number one and astronomy, with facsimile number two and astronomy, and facsimile number three and astronomy. This is why... The idea that Joseph Smith 
took these seven astronomical figures through the five degrees is so significant when so many others, he just simply wrote the hieroglyph and gave no definition whatsoever. He was emphasizing his cosmology, and the cosmology was not a geocentric, nor was it heliocentric. It was the cosmology of Thomas Dick, as Vogel noted. It was the contemporary cosmology of his day. Let me see if I can find this real quick. Yeah, the length of Kolob's revolution. So I'm on page 132 of Dan Vogel's book, Book of Abraham Apologetics. He says, the length of Kolob's revolution reminds one of Thomas Dick's speculations about the enormity of the throne of God and the vastness of the systems, systems of orbits around that throne of God. The slowness of Kolob's revolution, however, conflicts with definitions Smith previously dictated in early October 1835, where Kolob is defined as one of the 12 fixed stars under the rule of the three grand ruling stars and is described as swifter than the rest of the 12 stars. Wow, what is going on here? Is it fixed or is it the fastest? It's both because it's a system unto itself but it is also a system revolving around another system. So it's not heliocentric. It's not geocentric. It's a vast mixture of the whole cosmos. That was the contemporary understanding, and it was an inhabited cosmos. Everywhere they looked. Yeah, this, this is really remarkable, really. So it's not ancient cosmology. And yet it's not really modern astronomy either, you know. <laughs> so, but it is, see, in Joseph Smith's day, the contemporary theme, they were working through all of this, right? I mean, they were trying to figure this stuff out themselves. Yeah, that's what was happening. This is what we're witnessing in the hieroglyphics, the papyri, and the explanation of the facsimiles. This is why also, really, all three facsimiles are actually necessary to Joseph Smith's book of Abraham from his point of view. Now, uh, you know, we're not telling you the real astronomy because it's not. We're not telling you the real meaning of the hieroglyphs because it's not. We're not giving you the actual translation because it's not. We're not giving you the way Egyptian grammar actually works with the five-degree system because it doesn't. But this is how Joseph Smith and his contemporaries, including those in his society, was understanding it 
as they were searching for greater light and knowledge. So that's the value historically. Not that it gives us correct doctrinal truth. It just can't do that. It, sorry, if that's what you're looking for, you're going to miss it, right? So where the apologists misunderstand here now, this is really important, is, well, in the first degree, we're told that Kolob signifies the first great grand governing fixed star. Now, that's the first degree of Kolob. There we go. That's the first degree. Now, this one doesn't say fixed star, sorry, but it is a star nearest God's throne and slowest because it's also described as moving, but that is the fixed star, the throne of God, in facsimile number two, coming from the hieroglyphs, the theme coming from the Egyptian hieroglyphs by facsimile number one. So this is the furthest kolob here, kolob, this one, this one. This is the furthest that ever has been discovered by the fathers, which was discovered by Methuselah and also by Abraham. In the second degree, Kolob signifies the wonder of Abraham, the eldest of all the stars, the greatest body of the heavenly bodies that ever was discovered by man. Now, see, this reminds us of Josephus, what he wrote about the descendants of Adam's son, Seth, being the inventors of that peculiar sort of wisdom, which is concerned with what? The heavenly bodies, of course, and their order. Recall also that Abraham communicated to the Egyptians the science of astronomy, according to Josephus which Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery owned, read, and used. Later in Nauvoo in 1842, when Smith dictated chapter 3 of the Book of Abraham, he drew on the language of the Egyptian grammar, not this. Not this or this. Joseph Smith got his information from the bound grammar, which presents the five degrees of meaning. That's why Joseph Smith emphasized that astronomy with all five degrees, because it gave him flexibility on how to translate these various terms so that he could keep elaborating. Terrell Gibbons, in his book, The Pearl of Greatest Price, calls it bricolage. And he talks about Levi Strauss's theory of bricolage, where you incorporate as many elements of as many different various systems as you can possibly imagine, and then you amalgamate it all together and come up with a, quote, translation or a, quote, history or a story. This is what we are seeing Joseph Smith accomplishing through the papyri in the process establishing himself as a bona fide biblical prophet in line with the fathers 
right? Adam, Enoch, Abraham, Methuselah, Noah, etc., right? So he establishes that he is in that line. He has found the origin of the handing down of the patriarchal priesthood. He has found the Abrahamic astronomical correctness, and he put it in the chart, the facsimile number two, the round one, this one here. You've seen this already. I've shown you this. It all comes from the papyri, and it all always comes from the breathing book of Hor, which Joseph Smith clearly identified as the book of Abraham. That can no longer even be disputed without looking ridiculous, right? I, Abraham, had the Urim and Thummim, is how Joseph Smith translates this, which the Lord, the God, my God, has given unto me in the Ur of the Chaldees. That's the first two Egyptian. Hold on. The Ur of the Chaldees, and I, Abraham, being a man of righteousness, wanting to be a follower of righteousness and being more and more righteous. Yeah, that's this, you guys. There's where he got the land of the Chaldees. Those first two hieroglyphs up here in the corner. It says flaked off. But in the grammar, in the translation document to the book of Abraham, that first one is right there. And it's numbered number one, and then the number one is tied to the land of the Chaldees. Then the second figure is numbered to Abraham. I can't see it in the mirror, sorry. Yeah, right there, number two to the name Abraham. And then this third one is the signature. And that's where Abraham taken through the five degrees of significance is called the follower of righteousness. Well, his book was so important because he taught the Egyptians true astronomy that it had to be put into the Egyptian mummies and brought forth in a later day in its purity is how also Wilford Woodruff, it's how Parley P. Pratt, and it's how Joseph Smith identified their book the book of Abraham, as coming down, not tampered with, not seen for 3,500 years. Paul Osborne has some fantastic materials on that on net, online, where Joseph Smith claims that was a direct revelation to him. So all of this ties together exquisitely well. This is phenomenal. So, yeah, and then he talks about Kolob and, and how Abraham saw Kolob, the principle of Kolob, through the Urim and Thummim as a direct revelation, and which point of fact, Adam Clark, the biblical commentator in Joseph Smith's day. Thomas Dick, the philosopher, uh, just lived previous to Joseph Smith's lifetime, but his book was absolutely everywhere, read and understood and talked about, because he also had talked about the inhabited worlds, all of those earths, suns, and stars in the entire cosmos as being inhabited, and that was the philosophy Joseph Smith inherited. And he put it into his text as ancient knowledge through the revelatory Urim and Thummim.
That's fantastically interesting. When Smith published this account in March 1842, he included the explanations of facsimile number two, which also dealt with astronomy and were also inspired by the bound grammar. That's good stuff. No kidding. And then, and, and see, I'm, I'm not even halfway through my presentation, man. There, there is so much fun crap to study, you guys. I mean, this is like a never-ending subject, man. Oh, wow. Oh. How do I wrap this up? Okay, Yvonne Rosh and the 15 fixed planets or stars are mentioned in the English explanation of facsimile number two. Now, see, the apologists say this. Okay, this is a good point. I, I'll share this with you. I'm running a little bit over time. It's okay. It's all good. So uh, this concept of K. E. Von Rosh, now we read about that in the grammar earlier tonight, right? And it was also involved in the... Uh, you saw it in, in one of the five degrees of one of these seven. You still see this up in the corner. One of these seven guys here. Okay. So we're on this guy. Well, the apologists say that this K. Yvonne Rosh, the governing 15 fixed planet or stars mentioned in the English explanation, in fact, similarly number two, is a problem from the view of ancient and modern astronomy. So they say this seemingly prob this seeming problem derives from Joseph Smith's modern interpretations and not from the ancient text of the Book of Abraham. True, Smith and many of his contemporaries saw the stars as inhabited worlds. That's true. That's realistic. However, and this is the critical point. This is what the apologists miss. Their explanation is incomplete, you know. So Vogel, using his database of a much broader, complete group of evidence, utilizing all of the Kirtland Egyptian papers as well, here's what he says. <laughs> I mean, he's got Bayes' theorem on his side, man. This is really cool. He says, Smith drew on the bound grammar for his explanations of facsimile number two here. And the grammar is said to be a translation of these characters here from the Egyptian hieroglyphs, okay? So, this is the source of the book of Abraham. The grammar is the earliest text containing the unfolding of the system of astronomy. Each one of these guys had an unfolding of five different degrees. So, 
This was mentioned in Smith's journal entry for the 1st of October in 1835, and therefore this provides a more complete interpretive context for understanding Abraham's cosmology. There you have it. This is the power of utilizing, uh, like Bayes' theorem says. Uh, Vogel doesn't mention Bayes' theorem, that's me, but uh, Bayes' theorem philosophy is you utilize absolutely all evidence available, and then you can acquire a much more realistic probability of if your theory is true or if your theory is false, if another theory has a better chance of being more accurate than your own, or if yours is more accurate than any other theory. So anyway, I've gone over that too. But it's just, it's fantastic to see how the full implications of all of this material I, I will end it after I read this part, uh, page 138. Again, Vogel's book. This is really important. Here's where Vogel, because he acquired, because he utilized the fuller range of evidences, here's where Vogel has the better conclusion than the apologists. He says, the difference, a key difference now between Smith, Joseph Smith, and the ancients is that while the ancients saw everything excluding the earth, the sun, and the moon as stars, Smith and his contemporaries saw everything, including the sun, the moon, and the stars as inhabited planets. There's your key difference. That's really important. And that was established in the five-degree system of the astronomy of these guys that I showed you earlier tonight. So Abraham 3.5 describes the moon as a planet. And figure five, again, see, this all-important figure five, man. This is a big one, the cow the upside-down cow, and, and that is flow east the moon, that is uh, Klee flow Isis, the measurement of time, I mean, and, and it's also Kola, or not Kolob, I'm sorry, Vekles flow Isis, the power of one of the fixed stars. I mean, that is one of the major parts, and sure enough, Kolob, or I mean, Abraham 3.5 describes the moon as a planet, and figure 5 of facsimile number 2 refers to the sun, the sun, and stars as planets. And that's an important detail. As Reacher, the TV series says, hey, details are important, right? <laughs> It's very interesting. So the context of the sun's movement in facsimile number two, and that states that the moon, the earth, and the sun have annual revolutions. Did you know that? That's pretty important. The facsimile two explanation has that. They each have annual revolutions, which is inconsistent with the apologetic geocentric model. That's why it can't be correct. Joseph Smith took this statement from the bound grammar, 
where in the fifth degree, yeah, it was the fifth degree of flow east, signifies the moon, the earth, and the sun in their annual revolutions. In the fourth degree, flow east represents the moon in its revolutions with earth, showing or signifying the earth going between, thereby forming an eclipse. Here the earth moves into a position between the sun and moon, causing a lunar eclipse, which absolutely eliminates any geocentric model requiring a flat earth like their example from the Middle Kingdom in ancient Egypt. John Gee showed an ancient Egyptian idea. It doesn't save them at all. It doesn't give any evidence that that was Abraham's view. Flos Isis, the sun, is said to be the in the second degree to be the central moving planet from which the other governing moving planets receive their light. We saw that. Having a less motion, slow in its motion, obviously a central sun and a moving earth do not support a geocentric model. Yet the sun is also said to be moving slowly around something. Yeah, so this is consistent with the model of the cosmos proposed by Dick and the other natural theologians in Joseph Smith's day. There's the model. There's the key right there. That's very interesting, isn't it? Kolob is described as one of the 15 fixed stars or planets. And in the book of Abraham, figure five, again, that cow, the figure five, the upside down cow, a facsimile is also described as having a revolution. Yeah. Abraham 3, 4 states that Kolob was after the manner of the Lord, according to its times and its seasons in the revolutions thereof. And the ancient model cannot account for Kolob being described both as a fixed star or planet and as moving in revolutions. Right? The only explanation is that Kolob is at the center of a system which is at the same time revolving around the throne of God. And that's what Thomas Dick said in his book. That's exactly how he described it. The model of the cosmos, Adam Clark, called system of systems provides the best framework for interpreting Smith's explanations of Abrahamic cosmology in October 1835. And I mean, Vogel just keeps going on. He, he, he's magnificent how much stuff he's put in here. The, uh, I'm on page 143. I'm, I'm, I'm closing out. Don't worry. You're having fun. You're enjoying this. Don't tell me to shut up yet. The cosmology Smith described Abraham on page 143 now. This sets of 12 moving planets and 12 fixed stars, each governed by three ruling stars or planets, reflects Smith's recent organization of his church's ecclesiastical hierarchy into a high council. With 
three presidents and 12 high priests, as well as the Quorum of the 12 Apostles, which operated under the direction of Smith and his two counselors in the presidency. So the because the bound grammar is the earliest text containing the unfolding of the system of astronomy mentioned in Smith's journal, it provides a more complete interpretive context for understanding Abraham 3. Floes in the fourth degree describes a lunar eclipse, eliminating any geocentric model requiring a flat Earth, and Floes the Sun is identified and defined as a central moving planet, which gives light to the other planets. Well, in 1842, when he gave his explanation of facsimile number true, two, which drew on the bound grammar, he states the earth along with the sun and the moon has annual revolutions. And finally, Abraham 3.5 also dict. Now, this is history because Abraham 3.5 was dictated in 1842. This is something else John Gee and Kerry Mulstein argue against. It's, it's in the times and seasons. It's in the official history of the church of Joseph Smith. And they're arguing. I mean, you know, these guys have wigged out way the heck out there. And whoop, 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 land. This implies the earth moves when it places the earth in the planetary hierarchy below the slower moving moon. While a central sun and a moving earth do not support a geocentric model, the description of the sun as a central and moving planet, this is consistent with the model of a multi-system cosmos proposed by Thomas Dick and other natural theologians in Smith's day. Fantastic chapter, man. Anyway, uh, I I have uh, I've gone two hours. That that gives you a good two hour fireside. I've shown you some really excellent astronomical information and how Joseph Smith handled stuff. So uh, I hope you guys have uh, enjoyed it. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the chat. You always do, uh, and I enjoy going back and watching these and reading the chat because you guys have so much cool ideas and stuff. So it's a lot of fun to read. So I am going to, yes, you're very, very welcome, Tim Rathbone. Thank you, Dan Vogel. That was fun. Believe me, the fun was mine getting through <laughs> your book. Uh, you're probably talking about the chat, not the idiot on the screen. <laughs> I can't blame you. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to, uh, there you go, Mosia. Go get a telescope and find out those inhabitants. Don't be surprised if you see Quakers on the moon. See, I know that. The whole idea is outrageous, and yet, within the contemporary context of Joseph Smith's society, it's not, because they proposed other people on the sun as well. Yeah, not just Joseph Smith and the quacked-out Mormons. No, the whole society was talking about that. So that makes it kind of interesting. Oh, thank you, Doug Vincent. That was excellent. Thank you once again. Thank you, Teresa Pittman. My good pleasure. I will see all you guys next Sunday also. Next week, you get the Backyard Professor Fireside Sunday and Mormon Stories Family Home Evening and uh, 
in that one, the Mormon stories, I'm going to absolutely uncork it. I have a lot more graphics that you've never seen before to continue showing in next week's Mormon stories. Six o'clock Utah time. Man, we are going to have a ball. I have a boat loads of cool stuff to show you. I blew Gerardo's mind today. He There were several times where he said, wow, that makes sense now. I'm excited. So I'm hoping that'll be your guys' reaction. Now, some of the stuff, of course, you guys have already seen, but it's a great review. And then we'll get the questions from John DeLynn's view and Gerardo. And, and I've got much more uh, information that I'll share that I haven't even gotten to yet in these live sessions. So there will be a little bit of old, but there will be a lot of new material and new analysis and new context that is really going to be cool. So, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope you guys have enjoyed. Joe Smith was so far out there, no radar could pick him up. <laughs> That's a good point, Mark. We still can't, even if it's the Holy Ghost radar. <laughs> even the spirit can't pick him up, man. He was way out there. Oh, no, I'm not. But thank you, Last Goonie. I'm going to enjoy being on there. Yes, you do, Mosia. You need to get the book. Be there, be square. Right on, Doug Vincent. You got to be there. Hey, topic discuss. Hello. How are you? Mark Crispin, another excellent podcast. BYP, thank you so much, my dear friend. Mosia, can't wait for the Mormon Stories episode. I can't either. It's going to be fun. I'm going to spend this whole week preparing for it, tuning it up, fine-tuning it, trying to. So I'm excited for it. Yep. Monday, May 2nd, 6 p.m. Thank you, Dan Bogle. Oh, uh, it's going to be, well, uh, the Mormon stories episode really seriously. Um, you know, I mean, these guys are known for their marathon sessions. We'll probably split it up. I do believe they'll let me get away with talking for four hours, but I definitely have more than that amount of information. And I mean, I'm going to be talking just as fast and showing evidence piece after piece after piece, just as fast as I did tonight. It's, it's not going to be slow, but realistically we'll do, we'll probably end up do doing two or three. And then they've asked me to come back and give my full story. And that could be a complete nightmare of eight total hours. Who knows? <laughs> we'll see. So yeah, I'll, I'll probably be on uh, several times. Well, thank you. Half daddy, half daddy. That's very nice. Uh, a double dose of BYP. Well, Mark Crispin, I hope people can stand it. Uh, you guys think you, uh, you think you guys have it rough crap. I got to live with myself. <laughs> I have this daily. It's a disaster. I tell you, <laughs> oh, patty cake. Oh, patty cake. Come on. You are way too kind. You are a sweetheart. Mwah. You're awesome. No, I'm not a legend. I'm just a backyard professor, <laughs> but thank you. I will try to honor that designation. That's very nice of you. Yeah, right. Am I finishing up or just getting started? That's a good question because this is a non-ending topic and I have non-ending amounts of cool stuff. But tonight I am just at the tail end. I've been right at two hours. So, um, But next Sunday I'm going to carry on. Uh, next Sunday I'm going to get to Paul Osborne information on uh, Shiny Ha and several uh, 
very cool things that Paul Osborne has shown in facsimile number three. Uh, I should have said that earlier before y'all started to leave, but uh, next week for sure is going to be red hot. And then, of course, on Monday on Mormon Stories, I'm going to be bringing a lot more Paul Osborne out again. So you're going to get a double dose of his material, Dan Vogel's, a lot of people. So anyway, I'm, I'm loving being with you guys. You're very nice. The link on Mormon discussion didn't show up until you started. Can it be earlier? I I will try to get that. I apologize. Uh, I meant to, I meant to get it earlier and I didn't. But yeah, it's not here. Yeah, Teresa Pittman, thank you so much for showing up. Yeah, go to bed. Done. I'm just gabbing now. So, uh, yeah, I thank you, Lamb Chop. I I don't mind being laid back. Yeah, I probably get tense while I'm presenting information though. But I do like being well, laid back or just kind of calm and relaxed because I feel like I'm talking to my friends because you're all my friends, right? We're having a, a chat in the backyard. That's why they call me the backyard professor. That's one reason. So anyway, yeah, yeah, patty cake, four hours. Holy mother cow. Yeah, holy mother cow is right. This one right here, the celestial cow. Yeah, baby. She was actually considered Merit Werit. I believe she was called the Great Heavenly Flood. Yeah, that's fun stuff. All Paul Osborne, yes, my man, you are going to get your exposure. I promise. Yeah, you're up, buddy. So, oh, topic discussed. You're good friends with Derek Lambert at MythVision. I love that guy. He's my brother, man. I love him. I've enjoyed your shows with him. Thank you very much. We're planning more. We were going to try to do them. Uh, more frequently than we're doing. We both just get so busy, but we do want to do an entire series. So thank you for coming on here. And uh, yeah, I do look for me more on Myth Vision too. Derek and I are uh, getting together and also on Gnostic Informant. Uh, Neil, him and I want to do some more. So yeah, that'll be fun when I can get back together with him. Yeah, Derek's good people. You can tell him I said that. Just don't let it swell his fat head. <laughs> we see eye to eye on a lot of stuff. He's a good kid. I love him. So, yeah, there you go. Sun, moon, and stars, Mosia, right there. Oh, it's okay, Mike Weist. You don't have to apologize about missing me tonight. You can watch the replay. Absolutely. No, it's all good. It's all good. You don't have to show up. What you miss is the fun chat. But, yeah, please do watch it. Uh, I threw a lot of information in here tonight. Hopefully it was valuable to you. Uh, BYB is Yoda. Whoa, I'm not worthy. Do or do not. There is no try. Well, I can't bounce around like the little green guy, but you know. Let's see. I've got the force. Nanu, Nanu. No, that's not Yoda, is it? That's uh, that's what's his nose. Yeah. Spock. No. Uh, yeah. Mork and Mindy. Oh, oh boy, I'm giving my age away with that one, aren't you? Okay, you guys. Oh, stop at Quality Machine. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Uh, I didn't see if anybody donated anything. I'm not, I'm not, you know, thank you so much if you did. I like to acknowledge it when it happens, but I got real busy with this presentation, so I wasn't totally paying attention, so... Thank you for all your love and support. I don't care if you donate or not. 
uh, I love you guys being here. I mean, I do care if you donate or not, but I would much rather have you be here than not show up because you can't donate. That is not the relevant thing. You being here is what I love. I love being with my good friends. I love sharing some good information. And when we can all get together, I love sharing some good food too, right? And a good laugh. So, I mean, there's the value of all this. It's just, it's so much blasted fun. I'm never going to stop doing it. So, yes, live long and prosper. Is the, is that the one? Oh, no, this one. This is the one that looks like you're showing patty cake. I don't know what that would be. Hang loose. I mean, I'm so old hat. The only one I know is peace and the bird. Read between the fingers. I'm not going to flip you off. So, Spork and Spock is Mork. <laughs> That's a good one, Huff Daddy. Oh, Mosia, thank you. That's very kind of you. That's very oh you're you're awesome. Oh, thanks, Doug. Yeah, you're so full of it. Dang it, man. I blew it, dude. You're just about to send a $25,000 donation, but you said you don't care. I didn't say I don't care. I said you don't need to. I would rather have you than not if you're feeling guilty, but you are welcome to contribute just so you get the context, my dear friend. <laughs> ah, you're awesome, Doug. We're going to have some good times together, aren't we? Yeah, baby. Fire pit in my backyard from BYP. Me too, Goonie. I'd love to do that. I think now that would be the right setting, wouldn't it? Yeah. All together, cooking up some hamburgers or steaks or whatever. We're cooking s'mores over a campfire. And you don't want to hear me talking, though. You guys want to share your stuff, too. But, yeah, I'd be willing to talk. Yeah, that would be old. That would be awesome, man. Yeah, baby. Oh, thank you, Mark Crispin. That is very kind. I will always try to be here for you guys, too. Absolutely. I love it here. Fireside, yes. Yeah, baby. T-shirts. Oh, hey, yeah, we do, don't we? BYP Fuchsia say, man who studied Joseph Smith Papyri and refute Mormon apologists deserves a yeah, baby. It's simple just to say, BYU Fuchsia say, yeah, baby, yeah, baby. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Don't do a T-shirt. Well, maybe we ought to. What the heck? Hey, I'll, I'll mention it to Bill Real, and we'll try to put it into the, uh, the products for sale items on Mormon Discussions, Inc. Seriously, I'll mention that to Bill Real. I guess that's caught on. You guys like it. So, hey, I love saying it. I'm probably the only idiot that's willing to make a fool of myself like that, but I don't care. I don't have an ego. I have fun, mm -hmm. and I have friends that I love and love mm -hmm. to be with. Yeah, baby. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. All right, cool, cool. Okay. Yes, you can all come to the cookout. Of course, patty cake. Yeah, before we try, I think it really would be fun once this COVID crap passes, and it it may be, I don't know. I think it'd be fun to try to plan it out to where, you know, like Dolin does his thrive. 
Heck, maybe we can all find a way if, if Thrive is within striking distance of a whole bunch of us that we can all meet at Thrive and do Thrive together or something similar like that. Or we could do or we could just make up our own schedule and find a place that's fairly centrally located for all of us. And we can all go there and meet and bring our own food and bring our special concoctions of desserts or special drinks or great foods. We can bring our barbecue grills and grill it fresh. I think that would be a ball. I'd love to do that. Absolutely. I would love to do that. Yeah. Yeah. We have a store now, the Mormon Discussions Inc. And I will put in the request, do a BYP says, yeah, baby. I'll show a picture of me looking stupid like I normally do. Yeah, baby. Oh, my. My poor wife. I, I She's going to suffer. <laughs> oh. oh, thank you, Mark Crispin. Uh, that would be nice. Except for Doug Vincent. He owes me the whole 25000 not just 10%. I'm going to get you on that one, Dougie. <laughs> oh, we have a good time, don't we? Oh, Dean Schwank. Welcome. Oh, I'm sorry you're late. Oh, that's okay. You just got out of a state meeting. That's fine. You can watch the rerun. So anyway, I'm uh, unfortunately, I am just getting ready to sign off. When people see the video longer than two hours, it freaks them out. They sometimes don't even watch the rerun. And that's too bad because you can watch it at your own leisure. So, but anyway, yeah, Dean, thank you anyway for thinking of me. I appreciate that. That's very nice. Be sure and watch it for the announcements. Uh, both up front and throughout. But yeah, I, I shared some new information. Uh, hey, I love all of you. I appreciate all of you. You're a fun group. I can't think of anybody I'd rather spend time with. If tomorrow night they're doing a Mormon Stories, if I get home from work on time, I'll see you in that chat. And then I will see you next Sunday where we're going to do some good stuff. And then I'll see you the Monday after. So in the meantime, remember, be good, do well, have fun. Sleep good, make friends, smile, be happy. You are precious and you are awesome. Yeah, baby. And I'm going to get out of here. See you soon.